This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome back to In Discussion With. On today's show with me, I have Emily Ashton, who is BuzzFeed UK's senior political correspondent. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Um, and happy Brexit Day. Absolutely, yeah, it's all go, isn't it? It is, it is, yes. Today is the 31st of October, um, which is Boris Johnson's do or die in a ditch day for for Brexit. Um, So thank you for coming on in this time of great political uncertainty when we've got an election campaign coming up. Yeah, exactly. He said do or die in a ditch, but not quite happened. Um, So you, you came to Durham University, didn't you, Emily? I did, quite a long time ago now, but yeah, I was um, at Hatfield and studied geography back in the day. And, and you, studied, you studied geography, like you said, how do you, how do you transition from, from studying geography to, to going into political journalism? Because it seems to be <laughs> yeah. two kind of extremes there. I know, well, um, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, as a lot of people do when they start uni, do they? But um, I did a geography degree just because I really enjoyed the subject. Um, but then I ended up um, writing a palatinate and ended up editing in my last year and then did lots of work experience and um, uh, ended up going to City University to do a newspaper journalism postgrad after Durham um, and it seemed to be a good fit. So yeah, it wasn't really anything that I've... Politics journalism wasn't something that I've kind of um, craved for all my life but um, I've been a political journalist for over 10 years now and. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. And were there many kind of transferables that you could get from the geography to the to the journalism that, that you kind of can look back on and say, oh yeah, like that's something that kind of fits in here? You know, I don't think so really. I think <laughs> degree really fit. I suppose it was quite um, a social degree in terms of like there was lots of teamwork and um, lots of working with other people, which I think is so important in journalism, you know working in a team and being able to produce work together. So maybe that, but I haven't really given that much thought. It was quite a science degree, actually. Um, <laughs> and at first, I quite wanted to be a science journalist. Um, when I was at City, I did look into that. But I, it, I fell into politics, really, because I actually went to work here. I was working for the Press Association. That was my first job, the big news agency. And um, I had to work up north for a year in Leeds and the only full-time job that was available back in London where I wanted to get back was in Parliament as a parliamentary reporter so that's why I kind of fell into it that way but wow. I feel very lucky <laughs> to have found it. Yeah that's 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 amazing to go straight into to Parliament to work there and I know that you um that you were on a committee in Parliament as well recently how, how was yeah. that how did that opportunity come about? Well, that do you mean uh, the lobby? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so it's quite an, an arcane system, really, but the, the lobby is, is a group of um, political journalists, so all the political journalists for all the newspapers mm. and the broadcasters come together for lobby briefings from number 10 every day. And they need somebody to chair those briefings, a journalist, um, and to kind of be the point man between number 10 and the journalists. And so one person takes it on every year to kind of represent journalists in Parliament. And so yeah, I, I, it was. Um, I was lucky enough to be chair last year. Um, you get elected by your fellow journalists, and you know it was, it was a great thing to do. And um, so I was sitting in front of the the room 
um, sort of journalist with the with the Prime Minister spokesman kind of fielding questions. Wow, wow. And obviously the last year was, was a pretty pretty big political year as well. Well, I, I suppose the last three years have been pretty big political years, but how, how did that experience, um, how did that feel compared to your other experiences of uh, being in, in the politics scene? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, uh, the, the last few years have been absolutely mad. Because <laughs> um, I remember when the coalition started, and we all thought, that was strange. We're like, God, I can't get any more mad than this. Mm. Um, and uh, and then, you know, it, it, since the referendum, really, it's just been non-stop, hasn't it? Um, and then, you know, every week is just completely crazy, and you think, um, it, it becomes normal, even. Like, it's just it's strange. You kind of lose the novelty of it being so mad because everything's so mad at the moment across the world. Um, but for me, the last three years have actually been dominated with having two children. So I've, I've been juggling um, having babies and actually reporting on these major events <laughs> as well. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a um, quite a big three years for me personally. Yeah, and that must have been particularly difficult, exciting, and, and interesting. All all of those rolled into one with with you, your family and, and then the fallout from the Brexit referendum, all of those kind of stuff. How have you found the balance to be uh, recently? Because obviously there's been times where things have happened at a very quick pace and, and things have kind of changed overnight in terms of politics. And a week in politics is supposed to be a very long time, but it seems recently that a day in politics is, is even a, a longer time than that. So how have you managed to to mould those two kind of roles as, as your family life and your your, your career into uh, harmony. Yeah, it's it's not easy. I, I don't think for anyone. Um, I don't, if you're a mum or you're a dad, really, when the kids are so little, you know, you need to do, you do need to spend time with them and pick them up for nursery, and um, and you have to have a job that's flexible enough for you to do that. So I feel really really lucky at Buzzfeed that they are. Um, quite enlightened and they, they understand that I need to get away to get my girls and um, sort them out and, and I can work I work from home later at night or at the weekend and I get things finished that way um, I, I did work at the Sun um, newspaper for three years before I came to Buzzfeed um, maybe things have changed but I'm not sure I could work for a newspaper and with, with two small kids now just because you do need to be um, you, you do need to be around for when the paper goes to print several days a week and that's really really hard um, as a working mum to be able to do that so yeah the balance is always tough but I think um, working for an online publication like BuzzFeed gives me the flexibility to be able to do it just about although I missed the 2017 election and I was really gutted about that <laughs> when, when my baby was born I was like ah oh, the timing and, and you mentioned you mentioned BuzzFeed being the, the online online publication something that's kind of took off really in the last maybe three four years and um, certainly since since the referendum the existence of kind of online presences for for news has been something that's that's kind of skyrocketed you mentioned a little bit of the, of the differences between work and like for for the sun and for buzzfeed and um, what would you say is probably one of the the best things about working for a, a company like buzzfeed other than you kind of uh, flexibility that you mentioned uh, because it is is like an ever-changing platform BuzzFeed mm. is kind of something that's global is something that's on many different platforms how is that something that kind of 
differs to your to your normal general uh, print journalism role? Well, I think the major change for me was being able to focus on a story and being given time to work on it. Mm. Um, I mean, things have changed, obviously, in terms of what we've been asked to do, but really now we, we tend to focus on getting stories that are completely fresh and exclusive mm. and different out. And if that takes you a couple of days to do, then that's fine. Whereas at the start, I mean, it's just a totally different way of doing it. And as any newspaper, you need to fill a paper and and you need to report on stories that other um, outlets are doing all day as well. Um, but for us, we don't really find any value in um, writing the same diary stories as everybody else is doing, PA, BBC, because there's no value to us in why would somebody read our diary report over the Guardian, the BBC, anyone else? unless it's really fresh and different. So it's actually really um, challenging, intellectually challenging to be able to think, this is an interesting story, how do we make this our own? How do we get our own handle on this, make it interesting for readers, um, and not have to just churn out stuff and fill pages every day? Yeah, yeah, it's it's particularly a, a platform that I only see getting bigger and bigger, and obviously you your print journalism is going to be there for for a while yet. I don't I don't see the uh, the death of print journalism coming no, as soon as some people will see. But but this way of of compiling news and talking about stories in a new way is something that I think the public are kind of buying into a little bit more. I know certainly I don't know whether you're um, familiar with the the sports publication, the Athletic, that have just kind of started to grow and, and yeah. recruit more journalists. And that's kind of um, a platform in which long long reads, uh, long stories are, are given a lot more time and, and there's a lot more time and, and thought put into stories rather than just kind of your your clickbait, who's transferring to which football club kind of sagas. Exactly, so so yeah. I do see this kind of shift and it's interesting that you mentioned that. How do you see the um, how do you see the industry kind of moving to facilitate this shift? Yeah, I mean, I, we've been having this debate for the last decade, haven't we? The death, the death of print journalism and everything, and and papers so far are resisting that. Like, you know, you have seen a couple of them close, be independent, um, but people still like buying a paper. I mean, how do I see it shifting? Maybe I think eventually it's going to be more and more difficult for the daily particularly the broad keep going in terms of um, just the sales and, and, and also the time that people have to read papers. Um, people maybe have less time to on their phones more. I mean, people are just reading things differently, so maybe the, paper, the daily papers will shift to being a more mobile online platform subscription model, maybe. Um, but the weekend papers, you know, I think there's still a lot of room for them. Uh, but it's all, I think it's all about being able to be multi-platform. I mean, I, I think I saw somebody on the tube once reading the Metro on their phone. <laughs> 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 I mean, you see, people like scrolling on the phone and they like having it with them at all times. So you just have to be able to um, to, to reach people on, on what they use the most. Mm. I think uh, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be let out of the studio if I wasn't allowed to talk to you about Brexit. Um, obviously the the huge elephant in the room um, which is growing uh, day by day and now obviously the news of this election campaign I just want to get a few 
thoughts because there have been quite a few MPs resign or have said they're not standing for the next election based on the amount of abuse that they get. Um, mm. It's something that's that's particularly prevalent in the country at the minute. I, I can't remember which news source it was, but there was there was a particular poll that said that some amount of the electorate would say that the risk of violence towards MPs is a price worth paying for Brexit. Mm. How do you see this election campaign playing out with the late nights and the, the dark nights mm. and particularly the, the cold and, and damp and this threat of violence that is kind of an undercurrent? Mm. Yeah, things things seem to be changing. Everything's got a bit nastier. Um, I think I think a lot of that is to do with social media and how people could just hide behind their laptops and just type whatever they want, um, and they don't have to be held to account for it. They wouldn't say it to your face. Um, I think a lot of it is social media. You know, we 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 see MPs talking about. Um, I saw a tweet yesterday from ITV reporter who spoke to an MP. She says she's got 2,000 pieces of abuse this week alone. Wow. And I think that happens to women a lot more than men. Um, I think there is a lot of misogyny out there. And you see all these prominent women MPs come down and it's just, it's just uh, really sad to see some really experienced, decent, hardworking MPs stepping down when they've got so much more to give. Um, and, and the problem is that it, it puts off puts off other women who might be thinking, you know what, I might make quite a good MP. Even even thinking about standing. It's already hard enough for women, you know, you've got to live in London half the week, away from your family yeah. or drag your family with you. There's a lot of choices to make. And um if you've got to do that in a climate of abuse and fear and panic buttons, like why would why would you even bother? And I just think that's really sad, like that we can't stop that decent ordinary people that could be amazing MPs aren't going to do that anymore. Um, and, the, and the winter election thing is, is a decent point. We we had a story on BuzzFeed recently about real fears about um, campaigning in the dark. Um, you know, particularly after what happened to Joe Cox. There are some very very strange people out there. Anything has happened. People are people are worried and. The weather, the climate, the darkness doesn't help that. Um, but yeah, I was outside Parliament yesterday and the, the protesters over Brexit from both sides are so angry. There's just no middle ground for these protesters. They're just shouting at each other in groups. And I, I've, ne- I've never seen that before. You know, I've worked in Parliament a decade. I've never seen this kind of real visceral anger. And, and there's just no kind of walking either group round. And I think, yeah, it's quite scary. I think that kind of climate of abuse as well is something that's not just subjected to MPs, it's something that's been subjected to members of the press as well. Um, obviously Laura Kunzberg has uh, round-the-clock uh, bodyguards and stuff like that. Is, is it something that you've kind of had to take into account in the way that you conduct yourself or is it something that you've kind of had any issues with? I think um, that's right, and this is another point about social media, that people are very quick to come back at you if you've tweeted something that they disagree with, or the story is slightly different than what they'd expect. I get a lot of tweets at me saying, source, what's your source for that? And this is all kind of similar to the um, climate around Trump, isn't it, about 
and the mainstream media, mainstream media fake news. Mm. If we all dismiss the fake news, then what's real? You know, it, it's quite scary. So, you know, if they, it, you can only really believe what Boris Johnson's saying, his supporters would say. But, you know, we are supposed to be the trusted media to be able to be um, analysing what people in positions of power are saying and, and telling you things that are, you know, fact-checking. And if we're not trusted, if that fact-checking is not trusted, then it's a scary thought for the future. But yeah, I think I think it is all changing. Laura Kingsberg gets so much of it. She retweeted me the other day, and I got a real taste for uh, the mm. stuff that she puts up with and I mentioned. <laughs> I mean, people don't even really care what she says. It's like an instant um, just wave of abuse that she gets from all sides. And I suppose it's it's amplified with Laura working for the BBC as well, with that perceived yeah. either left or right bias, yeah. depending on where your own political views are. It's interesting yeah. that you mentioned uh, having that kind of insight into some of the abuse that she kind of is is subjected to. Or, well, it is daily because she tweets daily. It's it's part of her job. Is mm-hmm. is this something that you find? unsettling? Is it something that you've kind of been affected by in any way? Um, not not personally. I, I'm not as high profile a figure as Laura Kinsberg to for it to worry me personally. I just worry about um, I just worry about the, the information people are getting and mm. um, the, the, dis, the dismissive attitudes that people have of the media like we, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's similar for MPs. Most of us are only trying to do a good job and trying to get you accurate information in an interesting format. Like, there is no conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to get that across to people who really want to believe there is a conspiracy. And it's the same for MPs who are, most of them, fundamentally in it for the right reasons, mm. when people just instantly dismiss you as... Um, as, as a kind of um, you know snout in the trough in it for themselves kind of person I, uh, yeah hopefully things might change as Brexit calms down but I think it has been exacerbated by pretty divisive debates over the last few years mm. how do you see this is this is probably something I'm going to ask you to put your neck out a little bit yeah uh, how mm-hmm. do you how do you see this election campaign playing out and ultimately what do you think the result of this election campaign is going to be? I know this is something that nobody could predict, but I'm going to ask you to predict it anyway. <laughs> you can't ask me to predict. Honestly, I've, I've vowed not to make predictions. Like No one has got anything right over the past few years. And, and the polls are no indication either, are they, when you see the 2017 election and what happened to Theresa May's mm. campaign? She was, what, 40 points higher in the polls or something ridiculous. Um, I think it's a really, really fascinating campaign because I think you've got two figures who love campaigning mm. and are both really divisive figures. Some people really, really love Jeremy Corbyn, some people really, really love Boris Johnson, and some people really, really hate both of them. <laughs> and, and I don't know how it will play out. I don't know. There are so many factors. like. Brexit is kind of an overwhelming factor, but as my colleague Alex Wickham wrote yesterday, the NHS is taking over as a as a kind of 
campaign issue. Um, you see that Jeremy Corbyn's launch today. It's all about the evil Tories um, selling out our NHS to the US and trade deals. And that will just come up again and again. So it is really like, it's, it's fascinating. Where did the Lib Dems come? Um, do they manage to sweep up more seats? Don't know. I'm not going to make a prediction because I won't get it wrong. But it is it is interesting because we've almost lost the middle ground in some way, and that the Lib Dems used to kind of be this middle ground uh, between Labour and Conservative. But now with their hard stop Brexit stance, it kind of runs the risk of isolating people. But then also is is the big um, ambition to to gather up all of the uh, all of the people who are remain in the country so it's, it's yeah. it is a very fascinating like three party race in the uk and then obviously no one no one knows what's going to happen in scotland with the smp if they if they'll wrap up more votes obviously they have a more nationalist viewpoint it's it is an incredible incredible election and the conservatives will no doubt lose a lot of seats in scotland so where do they pick those up mm. um and if if the lib dems want to do well in the South West, how do they get those votes from very pro-Brexit voters in the South West? Mm. And, you know, London Tories need to do well there, and will they? I don't know if they will. Um, and also then you've got to look at all those uh, former Conservatives, the ones who've moved out, the ones who've moved seats, moved the Lib Dems, um, in fresh seats. Will they be able to pick up numbers uh, in a completely fresh seat? I, I was saying yesterday that if there was like 650 different by-elections, you could spend six weeks on each one. That would be mm. fascinating. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be a real challenge. It's, it go, it's going to be interesting uh, looking back or listening back to this podcast after the elections happened and seeing <laughs> what, what has actually oh, happened God. and then, then listening to... Well, this is why I don't want to make a prediction, you see. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think... The Brexit Party is as much of a, f- a force as they would believe themselves to be. Um, I, th- I think they are. They're a force. Um, if Boris Johnson hadn't been able to get a deal, but it all depended on what Boris Johnson was able to do with Brexit, and actually he proved that he was able to reach a deal in the end. Mm. Um, and that has made things quite difficult for the Brexit Party. Like. I don't think you could ever say, oh, he, Boris isn't even trying to deliver Brexit. He clearly is. Um, he clearly is. So I think they're, they're in a bit of trouble now, and they are, mm-hmm. by, from reports, you know, deciding whether to stand down candidates across the country and just focus on a few dozen seats mm-hmm. um, where they could take away support from them, the liberal, wishy-washy conservatives, presumably. Um, but, you know, if Boris hadn't even uh, tried to do anything or his deal was very soft, I think they would have had more of a chance. But now they're in a bit of a difficult position, I think. And, and just moving from the, uh, the very serious election Brexit uh, abuse talks, <laughs> yeah. um, obviously I couldn't really let somebody who works at BuzzFeed come on the podcast without... Uh, without going through a BuzzFeed quiz with you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so the quiz I have up in front of me is, your Ben and Jerry's order will predict your Halloween costume. Okay. So there are three or four questions here, um, and then obviously tonight 
Uh, I'll look forward to seeing the pictures of you on social media wearing the outfit that you were prescribed by this quiz. So, first of all, would you would you like a cup or a cone? I'll have a cone, please. And how many scoops? One, two, three, or four? Two. Two. And then there are four flavours here. You can either choose fish food, cherry Garcia, half-baked, or peanut butter cup. Uh, half-baked. Half-baked. And then there are four toppings, hundreds and thousands, M&Ms, strawberries, or no toppings at all. Oh, M&Ms. M&Ms. What flavour M&M though? That's the question. Oh god, I, I really like the chocolate one. Is that a flavour? I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that's a flavour. I mean, I can't have the peanut butter ones, otherwise I'll die. But... I don't like the peanut ones. Oh, that's good. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the question, by the way. That was just that was just me just, just me wondering that. which which particular flavour of M&M you, you'd like on top of the <laughs> Ben and Jerry. And so your costume is, and we'll do a little invisible hair drum roll here. Is a black cat. Oh, black cat! Is, you know, that's so funny because some... my three-year-old daughter went nursery the black cat today. Oh wow! There you well, go. you see, these blood speed quizzes—they are actually—they they are know, actually know, knowing. They, they know, know things. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Emily. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Um, and and where can my viewers uh, find you or, or read your read your articles? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at El Ashton, um, and my articles are all on BuzzFeed.com. Fantastic! Thank you once again, Emily, for for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening to the show. I've been Joshua Nicholl, and you've been listening to In Discussion with Emily Ashton. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.